Well, good morning, and again, welcome to Downtown Presbyterian Church. My name is Jonathan Davis. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, let me especially welcome you if you are uh, new or visiting. We're really glad to see you and would love to meet you after the service. Uh, we're going to transition to the sermon uh, portion of our service now, and uh, we're going to continue our series in 1 John. We'll be looking specifically at 1 John uh, chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. And we've been uh, sort of doing an overview of 1 John uh, for the last few weeks. And one of the main things that John is doing in this letter is he's giving us these tests uh, that we can use to evaluate ourselves to see whether or not our faith is authentic. And, uh, you know, sometimes his argument can be hard to follow. If you sat down and read uh, more than just a few verses of 1 John, it kind of feels like he's all over the place. Um, he changes course a lot, uh, and he says some really strong things throughout the course of the letter. Uh, and he's going to continue on the subject of love this morning. We said last week of all the New Testament writers, uh, John talks about God's love more than anyone else. He's preoccupied with it. And it actually peaks in chapters 3 and 4, which we've been looking at. And as we turn to the text this morning, I want you to think about how you think about love. Uh, let me ask it this way. Um, when was the first time you told someone you loved them who was not a family member? Uh, I can remember in the sixth grade, I was walking down the hall of Plaza Middle School, and there was a girl in my grade that she walks up next to me, and let's just say at this point I had zero interest in dating. Uh, but she walks up next to me, and she looked at me, and she says, Jonathan, will you go out with me? And I was taken aback, was not expecting this, had no clue what to do. And I was just, you know, this sixth grader was like, well, sure. And so then, by our little middle school standards, we were now going out, is what we called it, which meant nothing at all, because we didn't actually go anywhere together. Uh, but... A few weeks later, we were, we were hanging out with, with a group of friends, and she has this whiteout pen, and she grabs my hand, and she writes, I love, and she wrote her name, and she did that on both hands, and I was like, okay, like, makes me a little uncomfortable. I don't really know what that means. Uh, you know, she's pretty. She's cool. I, I, I guess that's what love is, right? And so later that day, my mom comes to pick me up, and she sees her 12-year-old son, uh, professing his love for this girl in his class, uh, written on both hands. And she says, Jonathan, you are 12 years old. I need to talk to you about what is written on both of your hands. But for now, just go wash it off. And so I went and washed it off. I had no clue what that meant, to love someone or to be loved by another person. What does it mean to be in love? What does it mean to love another person? That's what John is getting at in our passage this morning. Our text is 1 John 3, beginning in verse 16. This is God's word. Let me read it for us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask him to be with us this morning. 
Our Father, we do thank you for your word. uh, And thank you for your love for us, Lord. As we gather uh, to consider it this morning, Lord, you know all of uh, the baggage we bring into this room. You know the distractions on our minds. You know our great joys in life. You know our great burdens. You know our shame. And Lord, we pray that in the midst of all that, you would meet us by your Spirit to help us to know and love you more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm sure a lot of you remember the movie Hitch uh, with Will Smith. Hitch came out in 2005. Uh, Eva Mendez, Kevin James, some of the other actors in it. Uh, In this movie, Will Smith uh, works as a, uh, he calls it a professional dating consultant. He essentially helps guys um, uh, learn how to ask a girl out on a date and to have a, a, a good long-term relationship. Um, and he's really good at what, at what he does. He's become sort of famous uh, in, I guess it's set in New York City. And uh, the main story of this movie is that Will Smith begins working uh, with Kevin James, um, who sort of plays this kind of goofy guy who can't get it together. Um, and Kevin James is trying to convince this woman, Allegra Cole, who is really famous and beautiful and popular, uh, to go on a date with him. And one of the side stories in Hitch is that Will Smith actually begins to fall in love with a woman. And he's trying to use all his tips and tricks that he gives to his clients that always work. And none of them work with this woman in real life. And so he's stumbling over himself. He can't figure out what to say. But the movie as a whole, it captures how we tend to think about love. Listen to these two quotes. These are both from Will Smith's character Hitch. He says, So how does it happen? Great love. Nobody knows. But what I can tell you is that it happens in the blink of an eye. One moment you're enjoying your life, and the next you're wondering how you ever lived without them. That's love. Another quote. This is a famous quote that he uses. Life is not the amount of breaths you take. It's the moments that take your breath away. All right, so love, according to Hitch, is this feeling that that overtakes you in the blink of an eye, and then life is made up of these moments that take your breath away. I think many of us tend to think about love in the way that Hitch describes it, this magical feeling that just washes over you. It's just pure bliss. And so we equate love with romance, uh, with this like self-fulfilling, self-completing experience where we meet someone and they affirm us and, and they uh, compliment our lives in just the right way that we needed it. Okay, that's not the type of love that John is talking about in this passage. Uh, like everything in our world, sin, our sin, our rebellion against God has messed up how we approach love. All right, our sin causes us to approach love in a selfish way now. Uh, love uh, now means finding someone who will make me happy. Uh, love is convenient uh, for me. Uh, love makes me feel good. And as long as we can check each of those boxes, we're all in for love. But when this love starts to um, take into account the agenda of another person, or their desires, or their dreams then we're not so sure about love. Or maybe uh, you don't think about love as a romantic feeling of of self-fulfillment. Maybe for you, um, you haven't had that magical romantic moment where things just clicked 
And so you tend to treat love as this reward that you're going to get if you can prove yourself worthy of it. And so someone will love you if you can just show yourself worthy of it. And you'll give your love to another person if they can prove themselves worthy. So love for you is this thing to be earned. However you approach it, sin has messed up how we think about love. All right, so according to John, how should we think about love? We're going to look at the definition of love. And then we're going to look at this contrast that John develops between fake love and real love. So let's talk about the definition of love. Look at the text at verse 16. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. All right, so John defines love with a description of something that Jesus did. He says, Love is Jesus laying down his own life for the sake of the ones he loved. So our sin was so bad that someone had to die to pay for it. And love steps in and takes our place. All right, let's highlight just two things about this definition of love that John pulls out. The first is this, that according to Jesus, love means self-sacrifice. Love means self-sacrifice. If we jump over to another New Testament uh, letter, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the Philippians about how they ought to love one another. And in talking to them, he holds up the example of Christ's love. This is Philippians 2. Listen to what he says. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul is saying, Jesus was fully God, And he empties himself. He becomes a servant. He becomes like the people he's coming to save. And he humbles himself even to the point of dying on a cross. That meant that he went from being the king of glory to a life of obscurity. To a life of being misunderstood. Of rejected. Of suffering. And ultimately dying. Alright, back to our passage in John. John says, that is love. That's what love looks like. Jesus sacrificed his status, his position, his dignity, his comfort. Why? Because he loved you, and that's what love does. Love means self-sacrifice. And love also means action. Again, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Um, God doesn't just tell us that he loves us. Um, God doesn't just feel feelings of love for us and assume that we, that we know, right? He showed us that he loved us by acting accordingly. And John says, that is the definition of love. Do you want to know what love is? Look at Jesus, who gave up every personal right, every personal privilege for the sake of the ones he loved. Uh, so my favorite event is right around the corner. I think it's the best sporting event um, of the year. It's a Tour de France. Uh, it's in July. It's, it's the biggest cycling event. Uh, and a lot of people, when they think about cycling, uh, think about it as uh, an individual sport where it's just a bunch of individuals trying to get across the finish line first. Cycling is actually a, a major team sport where everyone on the team has a very specific role. 
So you have your, your lead rider. This is the most um, naturally talented rider on the team uh, with the best chance, given the course, of getting across the finish line first. That's your lead rider. The rest of the team then serves the purpose of getting that leader across the finish line. They're called domestiques or secondary riders. And the domestiques do all of the hard work in the race. So when you, when you see it on TV and there's the big pack of riders called the peloton riding together, all the people in the front are the domestiques. And they are blocking all that wind, making it easier for their lead riders so they don't have to use as much energy. Um, if the lead rider gets hungry, uh, the domestique will drop off that peloton and go back to the long line of cars that follows them. And they'll get food and drinks out of the car and then ride back up and give it to the lead rider. So they're using their energy so the lead rider doesn't have to. Uh, if the lead rider gets a flat tire or something breaks on their bike, the domestique will immediately stop, get off their bike, hand it to the lead rider so they can go on and continue. And they'll take the broken bike and wait for it to get re- replaced. But the objective for the domestique is to do whatever it takes, make any sacrifice necessary to get their lead rider across the finish line, all the while knowing that it, meant, that it means for these domestiques they have no chance to win. All right, I know there are a lot of different people from different backgrounds here this morning. And whatever your background is, have you ever thought about how Jesus loves you? He doesn't just feel feelings of love for you. He doesn't even just say that he loves you. But he actually denied himself of all that was rightly his. And he sacrificed his own life. He gave it up for you. Because he loves you. This is how much he loves you. This was not like a magical moment that he felt. Right? Um, This was, for him it meant suffering and rejection, and ultimately, death. And nor is this a type of love that you have to earn, right? That's how some of us think about love. This isn't the type of love you have to earn. Paul says in Ephesians that in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. All right, you know what that means? That before you wanted anything to do with God, he loved you. You didn't earn it. He loves you because he loves you. And if we're going to consider this definition of, or how we love others, we have to think about the definition first. If we're going to think about how we love others. Do you know this Jesus who loves in this way? Because this is the main thing. This is at the very core of biblical Christianity. It's a God who loves with this active and self-sacrificing love. And it's a love that that isn't going to change with the ups and downs of your life and behavior. And it's a love that that is there for you regardless of how much you grasp it. Um, Even on those days where you don't feel lovable, guess what? You're fully loved by God. This is what love is. The definition of love is Jesus laying down his life for us. All right. What about our love for each other? John begins with Christ's love, and then he moves to us and gives us this stark contrast between fake love and real love. So let's talk about fake love. Uh, This is where John starts to dig in on us a little bit. This is one of those tests that he gives us that we can reflect on, not just on the quality of our love for other people, but on whether or not the love of the Savior is really inside of us. 
Look at what he says in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. A few years ago, a documentary came out called Sour Grapes. Uh, It's a story of a man named Rudy uh, Kurniawan, who um, basically he uh, got some money to make an investment um, to start his own wine company, where he spent a lot of money to get a few really nice bottles of wine. Like, super rare, super expensive. So he gets these few bottles of really nice wine, takes them back to his house. Then he buys a lot of not-so-nice wine, a very average wine. And he uh, compiles all the, and then he just starts mixing it all together. And he tries to make the perfect balance to where he can sell all the wine as this really rare wine, all the while knowing it's been diluted down with the bad wine. But he slaps these really valuable labels on each bottle, and he starts selling it as the good wine. Well, he starts doing very well making like millions of dollars with a lot of really famous clients. Well, he's at this tasting, and there's um, a, 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 the owner of a vineyard from someplace in France with his vineyard's label on this bottle of wine coming from Rudy. And so the owner tastes it, and he says, this is not my wine from my vineyard. This is something else. And so Rudy is exposed as a fraud, and he's on the hook for millions of dollars because of this scheme. Why? Because the wine itself did not match the value of what the label said was inside. All right, John is giving us a fraud test as to whether the quality of our love matches up with the love of Christ that is inside of us. And he's saying that if it doesn't match up, then it's fake love. It's not that real love that comes from knowing Christ. Uh, I've quoted Robert Yarbrough some. He wrote a great commentary on 1 John, and, and he sort of unpacks what this person looks like who has this fake love. So we're thinking, is this me? Do I love people in this fake way? Yarbrough says three things about this person. He says, it's a believer that has material plenty. It's someone who has material plenty. Look at verse 17, the phrase, the world's goods. It's someone who has the world's goods. And we read this and we tend to think, okay, that's not me, right? Because we tend to think of like the three people that that come to mind that have more means than us. We think, okay, that's talking about them, people who like really have an excess of means, but like not me. That's not what Yarbrough says. He says the way this phrase is used, it is referring to someone who is able to live an adequate lifestyle. Basically, that's referring to someone who can pay their bills. And John is saying that if you can live an adequate lifestyle, and you see someone in need, but don't help them, then it's not real love. So it's someone who has material plenty. The second thing Yarbrough says is that it's someone who sees a fellow believer in need. And if you think about the context of the New Testament church, there are accounts all over the place of believers sharing what they had with one another so that no one was in need. Uh, you could look at Acts, for example, to see a lot of that happening. Uh, In our passage, there were believers in this church that had means and saw some who were in need, yet they weren't willing to give. And you could just think in your own life of all the needs that you've seen in front of you where you've thought, that's a really important thing. I want to give to that. I want to help this person. 
And then hours or days pass by and we forget. Or we think, oh, no, I can't do that because of this, this, and that. And we have all of these reasons. John is saying it's not real love. Material plenty sees a fellow believer in need. The third thing Yarbrough says is that this person is callous toward the one in need. Look at verse 17. John says this person closes his heart against the one who has the need. When he uses that phrase, closes his heart against, this is essentially the idea that it's refusing to feel mercy towards someone. That it's a hardening of your own heart to, to, to try to downplay or ignore the plight of someone who is in need. And John says, if you're doing this, you're not really loving people. And is God's love really inside of you? Turn to the inside cover of your bulletin under the reflection section. There's a quote on there I want us to see from, from Yarbrough as he summarizes this. I think this comes after us as people who love our theology. Yarbrough says, Love has profound theological underpinnings and a sublime exemplar in Christ. But God has sent love forth to be taken up, not admired at a distance. The first test of gospel profession is the practical expression of love toward fellow believers in proximity. Absent this, The claim to know and have God's love is a sham. And this forces us to consider, is my love real love or is it fake love? Um, Do I love people only with my words and not with my life and my time and my resources? Uh, Am I using people just to feel good about myself or am I really loving them in the midst of their need? Or how about this one? Um, Do I contemplate the theology about the love of God but neglect to build a friendship with my next door neighbor? And this is the way, by the way, that John writes his entire letter. He forces you as the reader to confront this test, this question. Am I the believer that John is talking about here with a love that is only theoretical and not authentic? Love is defined by Jesus laying down his life for us. Our love is fake when it's in words only. And then John contrasts this with real love. What is real love for us? Let's look at verse 16 again. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. In verse 18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What does real love look like? How can we really love each other well? The answer is not an easy one because John tells us that real love feels like death. He says that in light of Jesus laying down his life, we ought to lay our lives down for each other. Uh, And laying your life down, it means sacrificing uh, your schedule, uh, what you want to do, your priorities, your preferences, your way, for the sake of another, that they might have their way. And this may sound simple, but we have to say it. That's really hard to do. It's really difficult. Why? It feels like death. Anytime we say no to one part of ourselves, we die to ourselves for the sake of another, it feels like part of us is dying when we say no. 
Uh, kids, think about it this way. Um, when you're at school and you walk past the, the cool table where you normally sit, and you go to the table where the kid is sitting all by themselves who always sits there all alone, and you eat lunch with them that day, you are dying to yourself by dying to that status as being the cool kid at the cool table and all the jokes they're going to tell and all the plans they're going to make. You're dying to that for the sake of loving this one person who is an outsider. And that's hard to do because it feels like death. Think about it this way. Um, It feels like death on Saturday when instead of uh, having the perfect Saturday of CrossFit and brunch and shopping and a nap, uh, when you say no to all that to help somebody move, right? Your few free hours that you have during the week when you die to that for the sake of helping someone else. That's so difficult. Why? It feels like death. A few years ago, I heard an older minister talking about this very thing. And his wife uh, had a number of significant health issues throughout their marriage. And he had pastored a church for a really long time with lots of ups and downs. And he said this to a group of us young pastors. He said, I would rather die the death I'm called to die in Scripture rather than die the death I'm warned of dying in Scripture. Listen to that again. I would rather die the death I'm called to die in Scripture rather than die the death I'm warned of dying in Scripture. He was saying that what he had learned over the course of his life was that he wanted to die the death of laying down his life in love for his spouse and for his church rather than die the death of not having God's saving love inside of him. All right, that's a little bit different type of love than what Hitch describes in the movie, right? The experience that takes your breath away. What does real love look like? It feels like death. And just like it did for Jesus, it always involves action for us. Real love involves action. And this is John's very point, that we would take up the action of laying down our lives as a response to what Christ has done for us. All right, let's think about this action uh, practically. I, I want to suggest two ways that our love for each other can be active. And the first is this, that love and action means showing up. It means showing up. As I was thinking through this text this week, I could not help but think about my own mother. Um, my mother worked long hours in banking. She worked very hard, was very dedicated to her job. And my older brother and I uh, were involved in all kinds of sports and activities and clubs and all kinds of stuff throughout the year. We were not easy to keep up with. And when I think back to all of those games and events and presentations, I always remember my mother rushing in, still wearing her clothes from work, having just done whatever it took to show up and be at that game. I can, I've always remembered that. I know she told me she loved me a lot, and I, I never questioned that she felt that way, but what I remember is her showing up. Love in action, it means sacrificing to be there. And secondly, love in action means bothering people. It means bothering people. We are so hesitant uh, to reach out to someone in need or someone who is hurting because we are worried we're going to bother them. 
But the type of love that John is describing in our passage here is a love that actually insists on being involved in the lives of other people. Uh, Our lives, though, we're so isolated and our individualism runs so deep within us that it's actually a barrier to us loving each other well. So go ahead and bother each other in love. And you know what this is like if you've been on the receiving end. You're so glad to get that phone call. You're so glad that someone knocked on your door to check in on you. But we're hesitant to do that. Uh, Call that person when you're thinking about them. Uh, Ask about that hard thing that's going on in that person's life that you're unsure as to whether or not you should ask about. Uh, Drop by your neighbor's house unannounced just to check in and see how they're doing. I've got friends that do this weekly. Uh, This is real love. It, It moves towards people. It gets involved in the details of their lives. So don't be afraid to bother people in love. All right, the definition of love is Jesus laying down his life. And this forces us to wrestle with whether our love is fake or real. What if you're here this morning and you are starting to think that, hey, maybe my love isn't real. Maybe it's all fake. You connect more with the person that's described as having this fake love. What do you do? How do you turn fake love into real love? Well, you return again to the very definition of love, to Jesus Christ himself. Uh, When your heart is captivated and overwhelmed with the love that has been shown to you by Jesus, it's going to get inside of you. It's going to get into the water. And it will begin to seep into your relationships. And you'll see this real love beginning to pop up in your life. What if you're here this morning and, and, and you don't know this love of Jesus? You're here considering. You came with a friend. Here's what I would say to you. This love of Christ is on offer to you for you to receive by faith. You can actually know perfect love today by surrendering yourself to Jesus. And he offers himself to you. And guess what else he does? As we think back on our past... And all the ways that we have failed to love people well, those times we didn't show up, those times where our love was not active and it was in word only, those times where we went beyond that and actually burned bridges and hurt people, this same Jesus that loves us perfectly forgives us fully. That's how great his love is. And it's on offer for you today. Uh, my kids and I, in the last month or so, have gotten hooked on the show Dude Perfect. Uh, for those who don't know, Dude Perfect, it's this uh, group of guys who all went to college together, and they started doing, um, filming these trick shots with like basketballs and ping pong balls and all kinds of stuff, and they started putting the videos on YouTube. And it went viral. And when I say it went viral, like tens of millions of views on these videos. And so they created this empire out of it. So you can find them all over YouTube. They have shows on Nickelodeon, CMT. And you'll spend hours once you, once you open this can. So get ready. But they are so good and they are so unbelievable that a lot of people have actually questioned whether or not these shots they're making are real. Um, you know, they think, surely this is like a trick of the camera or that there's some setup behind the scenes that, that is making this shot. There's no way you can make the shot. Uh, like, for instance, they, they're, in one episode, they're flying in an airplane, and they throw a basketball out of an airplane and it ends up making it in the hoop. 
they, they had this other record-breaking shot uh, from the top of Reliant Stadium in Houston all the way down into a basketball goal. And it was so unbelievable and so impressive that a few news outlets actually went in and did, like, did these investigations into Dude Perfect to see if it was real. And sure enough, it is all 100% real. What we don't see is what they're doing behind the scenes. They're doing these shots over and over and over and missing and missing and missing. And it's all caught on camera. So when they finally do make it, they get to show that one in the show. But up to that point, it may have been hours or even days where they're working on making one shot. But if you watch it, it seems too good to be true. If you stop and really consider the love of Christ, it can seem too good to be true. It's so sacrificial. It's so complete. It's so perfect. You think there must be a catch. Here's the good news. There is no catch. This is how much Jesus loves you, that he laid his own life down for your sake. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you loved us so much, you sent Jesus to come and lay his life down that we might be rescued from our sin. And as our hearts are captivated with his laying his life down for us, we might begin to do the same for one another. Lord, make us into the type of church that lays our lives down for each other. May we be the type of church that lays down our life for the sake of this city. God, may our love be real. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.